Thank you for listening to Kano Wins podcast about the legendary Dallas venue, Poor David's Pub. In this podcast, Kano Wins Dave Chaos talks to Poor David's Pub owner, David Card, about his venue, his background, and his stories. Some of what you will hear includes David Card discussing Robert O'Keen's first time playing Poor David's, Towns Van Zant's shows, and Gatemouth Brown. The story starts now. This podcast is the story of David Card, Poor David's Pub, and a life in the live music business. Let's start out with, who is David Card? I'm here with David Card right now. David, where were you born? I was born in Flint, Michigan. What was your upbringing like? Mm, uh, very, um, uh, that's a tough question. We, uh, as a family, we, uh, we grew up kind of poor. We moved around a lot. Uh, there was a certain amount of uh, dysfunction in the family, uh, and uh, but um, you know we had the, uh, the the love of our mother for sure, and uh, that's about it for now. When was the first time you were exposed to music, and what kind of music was it? My exposure to music came early in my life, and it was from my mother. And my mother always loved to sing. And she uh, uh, actually formed us together as a group called the Card Kids, C-A-R-D Kids. And uh, we um, we would perform publicly, and then we would also compete in a couple of talent contests and we won the first one uh, my sisters my older sisters were you know a few years older than i am and my uh, uh younger uh, brother was a year younger than i was so we were all about the same age and we would um, as i said we would compete we won the first contest and the second contest at a larger theater we placed third. How and old were you at this time? I, you know, five to seven to start, right? So you you had a a very early experience with performing music. Uh, yeah, pretty much, right? I hadn't thought of it in that uh, in that vein, but yes. Where did you go to school? <laughs> in Flint, Michigan. <laughs> Just about every public school they had, there were, uh, you know, as I said, we moved around a lot. And then with each uh, uh, section of town, we had a different, uh, a different school that probably needed uh, registration in. So, Did you go to college? Um, well, eventually in, in Flint, Michigan, I eventually ended up at St. Michael's High School, which was a Catholic school and uh, was quality education in the high school level. And it certainly assisted me in getting into college uh, eventually when I applied to the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. So that's where you went to college? I did, yeah. And what uh, type of study did you do? Well, I started out in pre-med. I was a pre-med major. Uh, Eventually, I switched over to philosophy. So I graduated with a uh, B.A. in philosophy and a 
I guess a minor in biology. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then I eventually went back to the very same school and got a master's degree in business administration. What was your first job? You mean the first real job outside of college? Uh, I went to work for a small manufacturer of generators, automobile generators. This was the summer after I graduated from college. And that just didn't work out very well. It was a very small business. Uh, you know, quite frankly, I didn't like the owner. And, uh, it, you know, it, he didn't like me either. So, <laughs> And what was your first concert? You know, the one that I remember the first time was uh, when I went to see the Kingston Trio when I was at the University of Dallas. Went to see the Kingston Trio, and I believe they were at McFarland Auditorium at SMU. That's, uh, that's my memory, if memory serves. What was the first club you went to? Uh, you know, I remember going to the original Rubaiyat on McKinney Avenue, and I'm talking about the original when it was just a coffee shop down under stairs the building, underneath the building of the, uh, I seem to recall it was the Hard Rock Cafe building. It was down underneath, it was on the bottom floor, and it was just a coffee shop. And that was, uh, I, I think, the first club I went to. Um, hmm. Certainly one of the first, for sure. Did you ever work for any other venues or promoters before you started your own venue? In a sense, yes. While I was, this may take some explanation, but uh, a friend of mine owned the first hippie bar in Dallas. What it, was that called? It called Jim's Place. Jim's Place. Jim wanted to get out of the business, so he sold it to Bo. So it became Bo's place. Makes sense. So Bo, uh, when I quit IBM, I worked for IBM for two and a half years, three years. Uh, Bo said, well, you know, while you're not doing anything, uh, why don't you just, you know, tend bar for me and, until you find decide what you're going to do next? So I did. And um, uh, being the uh, outgoing, gregarious, an affable person that I am. Right, Dave? Right? Sure, Dave. <laughs> you got it. Uh, he noticed, Bo noticed that, uh, you know, that business was pretty good when I worked because I would engage the people. You know, I'd get them talking and I'd probably, uh, uh, back then I knew how to play the guitar and I would do, uh, you know, maybe a John Denver song or something. Or other. But anyway, at that time, Bo said, why don't you work for me full time? And I said, well, I don't think I want to. Maybe if you sold me a part of it. And so Bo did sell me uh, a quarter of the business. We incorporated, Bo's place incorporated. I may still have those uh, stock certificate somewhere. <laughs> uh, and eventually, uh, a year later, he sold me the rest of it. So I owned Bo's place for a while. And during that time, I, I noticed that uh, people were in a better frame of mind when there was live music going on. 
So there were fewer fights, fewer arguments, fewer disgruntled people. And uh, so I started a, a contest called, well, what did we call it? It was just a contest where we would go, we would hire uh, some artist to play for a night. Uh, it was always on Wednesday night. And we would go six weeks with different artists. And then at the end of the six weeks, we would select, oh, I'm sorry, I've got to back up a little bit. We had three different artists per Wednesday night. And the winner of each contest would qualify for the semifinal, sort of like the B.W. Stevenson contest. That's what it is. sounds like. Yeah, yes. very much. And so at the end of the, uh, we would have a semifinals, and then we would have a finals competition. Uh, and one of the winners of the finals competition was Ann Armstrong and Steve Hughes. Sure, you're familiar with them. Uh, another winner was an old person that's been playing for me for ages. His name is Kent Skinner. And he frequently opens for Sean Phillips when Sean comes to town and plays for Poor David. So, And it sounds like you were a bartender that stumbled into the ownership of a club. Was there any premeditated moment, if you will, any moment that you decided... This is what I want to do. I want to I want to open a club. I want to run a club. No, not like that. I do remember uh, a realization that if you take care of your own small business, it will take care of you financially. I was thinking. And uh, uh, so you know that was sort of a, a realization at one point, and that's probably when Bo and I had uh, when we parted ways, I just thought, you know, well, I'm just going to go run the club best I can. I, I did not at that point in time have any specific plans towards live music, but uh, they ju it just sort of naturally grew with, uh, you know, the word today is organic. It was just kind of grew up around me, and I tried this and that, and, uh, and things just worked out better with, with quality live, with live music. Did you keep the name Bo's Place? I did. I did not change the name. I didn't see a need to. <laughs> I didn't see a need to call Dave's place and just add more to the confusion. So I just, uh, the only major change I made uh, at Bo's place when I became full owner, I painted the front door red. Yeah. So that people. Why could, did you paint it red? So they could see the front door. <laughs> well, that makes sense. Where was Bo's place located? It, it was it was much more visible from the street as well. And what street was it on? It was on Oak Lawn, across the street from the original Marty's Liquor Store. In fact, Marty's Liquor Store was my uh, landlord. And during that time, were you inspired by any other clubs or uh, promoters or people doing... Well, um, good question. I would uh, I would occasionally go over to Mother Blues uh, in two separate locations. One of it was on Rollins, I think, or some some side street off of Oak Lawn, and then it moved. And then Mother Blues moved over to uh, uh, Lemon Avenue, uh, and so I would participate in both of those. 
I think faces had opened around the corner, and um, I always sort of admired their setup. It, it, it admired is the word, or appreciated, I would say. Appreciated their setup, that it was just, you know, concentrated on live music, and that was, uh, uh, and that's all you got. You came in for the show, and you enjoyed the show, and then you went on about your way. So, but I hearken back to a time when I was, you know, I worked for IBM, and they sent me to computer systems training class, which is a six weeks class in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm, while I was in Atlanta, Georgia, I went to a club, and I couldn't tell you the name of it, but it was downstairs, and it had a separate music venue, separate from the club itself. So if you wanted to see the show, you just went down into the, uh, and I think they charged a separate cover, too, for the event. And I thought, and I kind of liked that. I said, well, this is kind of cool. This kind of, well, this was before, you know, Bo's place. So just like, you know, perhaps the taste of, of uh, you know, showcasing music in a, a dedicated environment was already implanted in my brain. What type of music did you first book at Bo's place? Uh, you know, I'm, I've been a folky all my life, and that was, you know, back then John Denver was uh, popular. Who else? J- James Taylor. James Taylor was popular. So, you know, those, and then Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul, and Mary. So it was the type of music you were listening to at the time is what, what you decided to book? Generally speaking, yeah, within those uh, parameters. Were you inspired by any artists that, that made you think, this is the type of artist I want to put in my venue? Well, not immediately. Uh, but I do remember one night working for Bo's place while I was still maybe just a quarter owner. That There was a, <laughs> there was a touring band they were, uh, that they stopped in one night. And they said, and I think I was working. And they said, you know, we just want to play some music. We'll be happy to play for tips. And uh, uh, and they had a one-armed harmonica player. <laughs> it was, uh, and man, they just tore it up. Uh, and the audience loved it, and they made plenty of tips. And they got on their road, uh, and, you know, they had uh, the next gas tank full and the next um, uh, meals purchased. And they headed down to New Orleans. So, and uh, but I do remember thinking, what a change in the crowd, you know, what a uh, what a happy situation, you know. It went from you know, pissing and moaning, if you will, to happy, joyful. And uh, what type of music was it? <laughs> you know, New Orleans funk. You know, the harmonica, it was upbeat music, definitely that. Uh, rock, soul. I couldn't tell you the name of the songs. How did you learn the business? Well, by trial and error, strictly. You know, I just sort of, you know, well, I, I started this this song, uh, song contest. It wasn't a song contest, it was a band contest. And uh, I learned a lot from that. And then... Uh, an artist by the name of Roger Burton, you probably play some of his son's albums, Aaron Burton. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Uh, Roger Burton, somehow he and I got connected to one another, and so he came in and played every Saturday night for a while. I got to back up. I got to back up. Will Barnes was the first artist I took on a regular basis. Will Barnes, who got... Uh, that's a digression. So Will Barnes was hired away from me by the Texas Tea House. And let me back up again. Let me tell you, the first night that Will Barnes played, he got up and there were six people in the room, maybe four people in the room. So he just started playing. And he played with passion and he played with feeling. And uh, he paid no attention to the audience. People would come in throughout the night, and they would stay. So by the end of the night, there were probably 20 people in there. Now, Bo's place was only 50 capacity. So we had 20, maybe 25 people in there. They came in, and they stayed and listened to the quality live music because it was good. It was good. It wasn't just, you know, someone playing for their supper. It wasn't wallpaper music. It was not that. It was uh, it was original, and it was good. So that sounds like one of your first big lessons in booking artists. Well, it it was, it definitely was. But then he got hired away, and so then I went through another artist. Through by through, I mean I experienced another artist by the name of Suge Malden. She was uh, pretty talented. She had a good. Uh, uh, good vocals, and she could play the guitar fairly well. And she, for some reason, she faded away. I, I can't tell you why she was no longer on the scene there. Uh, I think maybe she she moved away. That's possible that she moved. And then I tried another artist by the name of Dusty York. Dusty York was a pretty attractive uh, woman. She had good, strong vocals, and yet... Uh, for some reason, that didn't work out. So then I got in touch with, somehow, Roger Burton. Roger Burton came and played for Bo's place for several uh, several months, maybe a couple of years, every Saturday night. And Roger Burton also started, founded the Bee's Knees. The Bee's Knees were very popular back in Dallas at that time. They became, um, they recorded a couple of albums. They played, they showcased at uh, uh, Faces a couple of times. Do you remember Faces by any chance? You don't. Nope. It was a Gene Street place, and it was around the corner on Cedar Springs. And it was a showcase room is what it was. So that's pretty much the early beginnings of my experience with with the, That's your early lessons in learning the business. Yes, that and also, you know, making a distinction between what's good and what will sell and what's not. Yeah. So. Um, so knowing what you know now, would you do it again? Uh, more than likely, I would do it again. Uh, would I do it differently? Of course, I would do it uh uh, you know, I, one of the factors in my longevity 
um, if we can call it that, and we're coming up on 45 years, so I guess we can call that longevity, uh, is that, um, you know, I finally was able to purchase my own property. Uh, the piece uh, down on uh, Botham Jean Boulevard. Uh, I would have tried to purchase that property earlier, sooner. In fact, I missed several opportunities. I bid on the place on Lower Greenville, and uh, for some reason, uh, I was outsmarted, outbid, outmaneuvered. And uh, there was the, uh, a, a theater on U.S. Highway 75, just coming out of Dallas, and I forget the name of it, and I called on it, and I asked how much uh, they were asking for the building, and they said uh, $26,000, which uh, uh, at the time, which you know was certainly affordable at the time. It would have been a push for me financially. I mean, this was back in the 70s, okay? You know, $25,000 ain't what it used to be. Yes, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but they said, you know, we already have a contract on the building. So I moved too slow. Uh, I have great ideas, but I'm slow to move on action. You're cautious. I am very cautious, yes, because I just want to make sure that I'm still around. Do you have any regrets? Business-wise. Business-wise. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, insofar as acts that I booked that I shouldn't have or acts that I took a chance on, um, if that's your, the direction of your question, there, you know, it's, it's just all a learning experience, Dave. It's just, you know, you, you try something and it, it works out or it doesn't work out. You listen to suggestions from your customers. That, that's how I got uh, hooked up to the Guy Clark. Someone said, you got to book Guy Clark. He'd, he'd, he'd sound great in here. You know, and I didn't have him till I got over to Greenville Avenue. But Is there any one moment or one show that represents to you why you do it? Yes, there are, actually there are two incidences, two acts that I have booked. One was at the Arcadia Theater, and it included um, these following songwriters who I think uh, constituted the best singer-songwriter show that America's ever had. And those artists were Towns Van Zandt, Guy Clark, Mickey Newberry, Jerry Jeff Walker, and Rodney Crowell. Now, the only one of those alive today is Rodney Crowell. Did they all play together or one at a time? They played one at a time. You know, occasionally they, you know, if they're familiar with the other person's songs, they would join in. But uh, they played one at a time. They sat on bar stools, except for Mickey Newberry. Mickey Newberry had a back problem, so he sat on a chair. And so there were all the four bar stools above him, and he was down on the, sitting on the chair, and it was comically, comical. Um, but that was, uh, that was uh, 
It was on Easter weekend, tough weekend, probably the toughest weekend in the year uh, to book a, a show. I learned long ago not to do that weekend. Yes. And uh, so I lost $1,000, but it was worth it. And and I have pictures of it hanging in my club of the, that show precisely. And uh, there was people who have been to that show tell me frequently um, mentioned that it was the best show. One guy said, he says, I came out from that show and I went straight to the box office and bought a ticket to the second show because I did two shows, assuming we were going to sell that many tickets. So between those artists, what was an outstanding characteristic that separated them from each other in so far as how they performed and approached the show? Well, everyone has their own unique style. Uh, my one concern was actually, you know, Towns Van Zandt. Towns didn't have the best reputation for, for staying sober on stage, and I was concerned about that, but he actually did just fine during that show. And uh, not only did he stay sober, but he sounded, you know, twice as good. Now, in answer to your question, the second show that happened on Lower Greenville at the Greenville Avenue location was the one time that I uh, booked Arlo Guthrie into my club. And we sold buku tickets. We sold, we could have sold two shows out easily, um, but he just had time for one show uh, we had 300 and something people in there, and, and the capacity was like 250. And uh, we had 350 people in there. And uh, it was just, you know, 350 people packed into this small space. And when Arnold Guthrie sang, it was totally quiet. You know, it was like, shh, quiet. Yeah. We're listening to the master. Uh, so that's that's another example of uh, you know quality performance in a, a, a humble setting. Humble, I, I, I think of Port Davis as humble and just all about the music and uh, not pretentious. So going back to an artist you just mentioned and on the big show at the Arcadia. And I know you did many shows with him. What was it like working with Towns Van Zandt? Well, it was always a crapshoot because he did have this, uh, um, uh, he had this drinking problem, uh, uh, you know, for which he is well known. The, you know, uh, how did he behave? I mean, he would behave the best he could while being, I mean, he never misbehaved, let me put it that way, but he was uh, frequently uh, handicapped by his uh, alcoholic state. And so uh, there was, uh, <laughs> I gotta tell you a funny story. Uh, I got a call from, so Towns had a friend by the name of Roxy Gordon, and Roxy lived one block from Poor David's on Lower Greenville. 
And he called me and he said, listen, uh, Towns is having a big fight with his wife, Jeannie, and he's coming to town and uh, he's going to stay with me and he's hoping maybe he can get a, a gig or two uh, while he's in town. And I said, well, I don't have anything you know, available, but I do have tonight's the open mic night or tomorrow night was the open night. It was the open mic night. It was imminent. And I said, um, you know, maybe he can come and play a few songs and I'll just, I'll just loan him a hundred dollars and, you know, um, because a hundred dollars was a lot of money back then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, we'll just, I'll just, uh, hold it against his future performance fees. And, uh, so he came into town, and they walked in the back door. Roxy and Towns walked in the back door together, stumbling one another, around one another. Um, surprised they didn't fall down the back stairs. Thankfully, they did not. So I walked up to Towns, and I said, you know, Towns, here's, uh, uh, here's the $100 you needed to borrow but I don't think you should probably get up on stage to play tonight. And he says, oh, okay. okay, all right. He accepted that. And when I got back and talked to his agent the next day, the agent, who was Keith Case, by the way, who's also uh, the agent Guy for Guy Clark. Yeah. yeah. So he says, well, Towns told me that you paid him $100 not to play. <laughs> <laughs> I says, well, it didn't quite happen that way, Keith. But uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's the way he foresaw it. So. Can you tell us about a young Robert Earl Keane and the first time that he was playing at Port David's Pub? Well, I don't remember exactly the first time. <clears throat> I do know that one of the earlier times he played with Lyle Lovett. It was December of 87, I'm guessing. Um, I have the poster, so I could, I could verify that if I needed to, but maybe it was 86, December of 86. Uh, it was wintertime. It's pretty cold. It was December. It was, uh, as I said, it was cold. We had a maybe 40 people out to see these two artists, and they paid $4 a head. Now, Arlo, um, not Arlo, um, Lyle Lovett today, $100 a ticket. Yeah. When did Lyle Lovett first play The Room as a solo artist? Um, early. By, uh, you know, I, I don't remember exactly the, but it was, you know, mid to early 84s. And he may have been, it his first gig may have been with Robert Earl Keane because Lyle Lovett was not quite as popular as Robert Earl Keane was at the beginning. And uh, at this point, they're pretty much on the, uh, I would say, the same level just they uh, appeal to different audiences. How did you find out about the Dixie Chicks, and when was their first show at Port David's Pub? 
Well, the Dixie Chicks, first of all, were they were pre-Dixie Chicks when they entered into my uh, lifestyle, uh, my, uh, I'm sorry, uh, music style. Um, because, you know, the, the girls, the, the sisters, uh, were uh, bluegrassy. They were more bluegrassy. And I did a lot of bluegrass uh, early at Poor David's on uh, Greenville Avenue. <clears throat> did a lot of bluegrass. Um, in fact, we had uh, Newgrass Revival. And uh, in any case, we, we uh, uh, and Doc Watson also. Doc Watson was one of the very first shows I put on. That was Bluegrass ish and uh it was in june of 83 you know that's a date you don't forget <laughs> the first time you have jack doc watson so uh, the dixie chicks because of their bluegrass orientation they were uh drawn to the club when i would have bluegrass acts and so they were uh, uh always um I-, I was always aware of their presence and what they did they were much younger then of course and we're talking about 83, 84. Um, and it wasn't until 89 that I'm walking past uh, a restaurant on Knox Henderson. So I'm, I'm walking past this restaurant and Laura Lynch runs out from the club. She runs out from the restaurant and says, David, you got to hear this. You got to hear this act. It's the three of us, and we're playing right now. I says, "Well, I just I've got to go. I've got business, and I've got to go someplace." And uh, she said, "Well, wait. We'll uh, I'll bring them out here <laughs> on the sidewalk." So I'm there out on the sidewalk, and they bring out their instruments and they play a cappella for me. Uh, is it a cappella? Mm-hmm. Without the. Just singing. Well, but they, but they also Acoustic. played their instruments. So, so they, they, played, they played unplugged. Yeah. Uh, and um, I said, well, that's, that's a great sound. I like that. So just give me a call sometime and, and we'll line something up. So they called me and they opened for. I, we made a deal and they opened for Alan Damron. In November, I've got the date written down somewhere, November of 1989. That was their first gig uh, at a bar as the Dixie Chicks. Their first club show. Their first club show, yeah. They, they played restaurants, but uh, not Port Avage and not, not a club. So. And so you mentioned Doc Watson earlier in that answer. Doc Watson, how did you come about booking Doc Watson? How, how did that happen? The agent for Doc Watson was booking other acts into my club, especially Dave, Dave Van Runk. And uh, when I told him I was moving to a larger location, he says, well, do you think you'll have room how many seats you gonna have? I said, well, you know, 200 plus, you know, cause I had only a hundred on uh, McKinney Avenue. 
And uh, he says, well, then maybe you'll be able to do acts like Doc Watson. Uh, and I said, well, okay. I didn't know who Doc Watson was at the time. That's how uneducated I was in the music business. Um, I also, this is a digression, but I also didn't know a lot about blues music either. And uh, I got educated by my customers and by my help. They said, well, you need to bring up the Cobras. You need to bring up Stevie Ray Vaughan. Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan was always just a little too popular for me. He would play at Nick's Uptown, when, which was, you know, 450 capacity, and my place was only 200. So, But he did sit in at Port Davis a couple of times. But you never had Stevie Ray? As a headliner, no. Okay. No. But he did sit in a couple of times on Anson Funderburg's Monday Night Blues show. And uh, I was able to serve him a Coke. This was after he got sober. And I served him a Coke. He said, thank you. (laughs) So Doc Watson, what was his first show at Port David's like? Uh, you know, we sold out two shows. We, we did two shows. We sold out, you know, we flipped the house 200 and brought in another 200. And, um, uh, it was just, you know, uh, you know, those, you know, Doc Watson has, uh, an extremely loyal fan base or had an extremely loyal fan base and they, they just loved him, you know, and he would, uh, he would pick the guitar with uncanny ability and all of this while he was blind. You know, he just, it begs the question, how did he learn all this stuff? How did he learn these styles? And uh, uh, someone once rumored that he, he learned some of his styles from listening to a record that had two guitars on it, but he thought it was just one guitar. And so he, you know. Uh, Figured out how to play like two. Yeah. So how many times did Gatemouth Brown play at Port David's Pub? Numerous. And I loved Gatemouth Brown. I still love him. You know? What's your best Gatemouth story? <laughs> and with Gatemouth, I'm sure there's a few. You're, you're allowed to give us two if, if you can't narrow it down to one. Uh, okay. Well, the one, one story was... He called me and he says, uh, "Card." He would call me Card. He says, "Card, I need some Christmas money." I said, "Well, how much do you need?" He says, "No, oh, I need like five, six hundred bucks." Again, this was in the eighties when when there was no small amount of money, so I would loan it. I would loan it to him as in advance against, and I was on good terms with his agent too, and so we all knew that you know Clarence was good for it, no problem whatsoever. So. So that's one situation. The other is I walked into the office, which was extremely tiny on Greenville Avenue. The office was very tiny. You've been in it, I think. Yes. It was. And that office doubled as the dressing dressing room. room. (laughs) And uh, so, um, by the way, I have found many interesting things in that dressing room. One was a harmonica that I think Arlo Guthrie left. Another one was a shirt that uh, uh, Gatemouth Brown left. 
and a variety of other things. Who is the most interesting artist you worked with? Interesting as a person outside of the music they created? Well, there are two who came to mind, who come to mind immediately. One was uh, Leon Redbone, who was just kind of quirky. And uh, the other one uh, was Gamble Rogers, who was extremely gentle person, could play the guitar, uh, could pick like nobody's business. In fact, he's the only person in Doc Watson's many performances at Poor David's Pub that that Doc invited up on stage to pick along with him. And once he started picking, I could see why. Because it was just an outflowing of pickability, if you will. <laughs> of of picky, picking. Pickability, a poor David's term? Ah, uh, yes. It, yes, I just created it. and uh, I'm, The language I'm, of poor David. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to... Uh, uh, A thesaurus I'm, is I, coming? I'm going to patent it. <laughs> and Leon Redbone, you, you said it was quirky, and how is that? Well, the one time he played for me, he, I remember two separate instances. One time he brought a handgun that fired a blank throughout the show. And this was unexpected by everybody. We had no idea that he was going to do that. So he pulled out a gun and shot a blank during his show? Uh, during one portion of a, one of the songs that, that it, it was not, uh, it, it was in, in, in the theme of the song itself, but no one expected that for this to happen. I would uh, imagine so. No. Um, so that did anyone pull out a gun to attempt to shoot back? No. <laughs> no. Uh, and the other time was uh, he. Uh, whenever I, whenever he played for me, I had to have uh, a spare room for him, and a spare room could be just a rented RV out back parked out back. And so after the show one night, we went back there and drank, drank some uh, tequila with him. Or uh, Actually, he liked Jägermeister. That's what he liked. So we drank some Jägermeister, and we smoked a little pot, you know. Uh, he, he brought it out. <laughs> we smoked it, passed it around. Then all of a sudden, he stands up and he says, okay, time to go. <laughs> and he ushered us all out. Uh, and uh, so that's what I mean by a little quirky. Okay. Yeah. I get it. I get it. What is one thing you feel all live music audiences have in common? Um, you know, more than 45 years into the business now, you know, Poor David's is 45, but I really started Poor David's at Bo's Place before. Uh, or at least the, the, the theme of. Uh, uh, you know, for one thing, music is therapy. Music just by its nature is therapy. Uh, you know, Plato, Plato has said music gives soul to the universe 
soul to man and meaning to the universe. Now, I may be I may be paraphrasing that, but that's a quote from Plato from, you know, 2,500 years ago. Before the 3,000 years ago, yeah. Before Jesus, okay? <laughs> and I think that's true. You know, I think music just by its very action on people, what's the, what's the phrase, the music hath charms to calm the angry bear or something? Savage beast. <laughs> savage beast, there you go. <laughs> angry bear, savage beast, one and the same to me. Yeah, and I think that's true. You know, I, I think that the, without the harmony of the, the vibration of the, somehow the vibrations go throughout the, you know, I'm getting too technical about it now, but that's one thing for sure. Music is therapy. I've watched so many people over the years come in to a show and be uplifted by it and come back to me 10, 20 years later and say, remember that show down at, you had it on Lower Greenville. You had it at, you know, early days now. You had it at McKinney Avenue. Odetta played at McKinney Avenue one time. God, that was a great show. And this is 20 years later, Dave. They don't forget it. No, they don't. It's got that enduring passion and uh, enduring quality. And I've seen people come in frumpy and leave happy. Yeah, you see a little bit of the other too, but mostly people coming in for a show, they know what they're going to get, and uh, they, uh, they're satisfied. They're soul satisfied. Yes. I've seen those people. How do you discover new artists? You know, there's the, there's the network. There's that, walking by a restaurant. Yeah. Well, there's the network of, you know, that's uh, uh, agents, word of mouth. I just had lunch with Christine, the mother of uh, Dylan James Boogie Boy Shaw. We had lunch yesterday. And my long-term goal is to see where I can fit in. Because this kid's obviously going to be a big deal. You know, if anyone has a chance of it, he does. And I'm just, you know, I'm trying to find out uh, how Poor David's Pub can fit in with his support, support him along the way in his journey to stardom if, uh, if he gets there. How else do I find new talent? I get, you know, I get suggestions all the time. I, uh, every once in a while, I'll just hear somebody and I'll say, wow, that's really good. Uh, Tim York called me the other day, and he says, "You got to come to the, you got to come to hear this act that's playing at uh, the Sons of Herman Hall." And so I had the time off, so I went by and heard this guy, and I can't tell you his name right now, but I was impressed, and uh, I've made attempts to uh, get a word to him about uh, if he comes back to Dallas, maybe he'd like to play the Port David's Pub. So, you know, a variety of ways. So you've always been willing to give acts like that, like Boogie Boy Shaw, an opportunity to play your venue? Pretty much, yeah. New acts. Yeah. You know, and I, it's, you know, this leads to another dimension of the live music business that is, 
it's not all about money for me. It's about some money. And it's about some, you know, you got to stay open to, to put on the next show. You have to stay open to put on the next show. But it's not all about the money. And sometimes, you know, so if you offer a, uh, a, a, an act that thinks that they can pull enough people that you make a little bit of money and not a lot of, and, and, uh, and they carry through on their uh, marketing efforts and you have a good time, everyone has a good time, What's uh, what did you lose? Correct. Well, the uh, waters of commerce in the music business are the shallower ones. The waters of inspiration run deep. Yes, and is that your quote? Someone I just came up with. Yeah, I like it. Um, who was the biggest blues act play for you? Well, the most historic or the biggest blues act? I mean, Kevin Moe played for me one time. Kevin Moe. Yeah. Kev Moe, and he, uh, uh, he was brought to Poor Davis Pub by Josh Allen. Thank you, Josh, and because Josh and he were connected somehow, and so when he came to Dallas, Josh pointed him my way. So Kev Moe, Albert Collins, uh, Anson Funderburg, of course, who's you know enduring and uh, has a— He had a regular night there, didn't he? He, yeah, um, this is another interesting story. You know, when he, Anson was brought in to play with the Bee's Knees over at Bo's place. Okay, we're back in the 1970s now. And I went to Anson and I said, Anson, if you ever decide to have your own band, contact me and let's get something together. So he called me one time and he says, David, I want to start, I want to play uh, a Monday night. I, you know, I think maybe, I, I don't remember who came up with the idea, but it was a Monday night blues program that we played for, ran for 10 years, starting on McKinney and went over to Lower Greenville. So he called me and he said he wanted to try something on a Monday night. I says, okay, we'll call it Monday night blues. I think that's how it happened. And we charged a dollar on the door and we had 42 people show up. There's $42. And we had to pay the band 10 bucks per member. You know, $10, $10 American. <laughs> so um, he made 40 bucks, the band made 40 bucks. I made $2 and we had a great time. And that was the start of the Monday Night Blues program for the next uh, 10 years. And Blue Mondays became a thing in Dallas for the longest time. There was many different venues doing Blue Mondays. Yes. Um, I think came out of the song about Blue Monday. Well, you know, actually, you know, I will take credit for starting that program. Um, and Anson as well, because we, we, we put it together and we, we had the Blue Monday program. And now there many others started borrowing the name or, you know, the... Uh, not only the name, but the, uh, you know, it was Monday, you know. No, there was a time in Dallas where on a Monday night you could go to four or five different Blue Monday shows or jams, you know, Schooners, Poor Davids, GBG. Schooners, I forgot Schooners, yeah. Yeah, um, which was just taking an off night and making it on. Right, <laughs> right. Um. What was it like working with Mick Taylor, former guitar player for the Rolling Stones? 
Uh, I remember very little about it. First of all, financially, it was one of the biggest losses I've ever taken because I guaranteed him a lot of money and we had very little people show up. And it was probably an off night. Um, but once again, that was, uh, you know, during my journeyman days and I was, you know, learning the, the ropes that uh, simply because he was connected with the Rolling Stones at one time did not mean that he was going to bring out a lot of people necessarily. So, uh, but personally, uh, I don't remember neither uh, bad nor, nor good qualities about him. I just, it's pretty much a blank, really. What was the biggest show you ever did? The biggest show? Well, I presented, I, I, I did uh, Robert O'Keefe at the Majestic Theater twice. And we sold about 1,000 tickets each time. Uh, now, if you mean big in that sense, uh, quantity of people, that would be the answer. Okay. Without naming names, what was the worst artist experience you've ever had? Surprisingly little. There was one artist who did not want me to mention the fact that his older brother was more popular and so did not want did not want any mention about his older brother that was more popular involved in the marketing of it okay so that was a night that i i i canceled i almost canceled the show i said look i'll just give you your fee and you can leave and i'll just tell everyone that you know we had a disagreement and uh he says, oh, no, well, I want to play. I want to play for these people. But that was very disagreeable encounter. And in fairness, what was the best artist experience you've had? Or a few? Oh, God, there are just too many. You know, um, you know, that night with Arlo Guthrie, 350 people in there. I say 325, but it was closer to 350, counting all the, the help. Um, that was, that was just a magical moment. That was just, this wonderful. And he was great. You know, he was, you know, he was, uh, I have several pictures up in the club by him, uh, playing that night and, uh, just everybody loved him, you know, very agreeable. Gatemouth Brown and I were soulmates. I don't think he ever got to play the, what I call the new Port Avids on Botham Jean, and, uh, which was a shame because he died in 2005, I think, and shortly after I opened. And he did come to a benefit there once for him, but he was not feeling well enough to get up there and play. So when did you see it coming? Artist who you knew would go on to be big. Man, that's, 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 you don't see that. I mean, I don't see it that way insofar as, uh, you know, a package that's going to be developed, that's going to be, grow up to be, you know, extremely successful. Uh, you know, I did not see it with the Dixie Chicks. I knew that they had, or the Chicks, as we call them now, as they prefer to be called, 
uh, you know, when they, they made their move to Nashville, then, the, you know, they got another bump up, and that it was successful. I did not see it with Marin Morris, uh, nor with Miranda Lambert. And, you know, a lot of hard work went behind the scenes to bring success to those three special acts, actually. And uh, so it, does, it, it doesn't happen just because they got the talent. You got to do a lot more stuff than that. Where did the name Poor David's come from? Well, when I started the business, I was broke. I had, in fact, my very first sign, sign, a Poor David's Pub sign, was a picture of me with my t- pockets turned inside out, and there was no money in them. And uh, so that's where it came from. And another, here's another element. Uh, Dave, is that, you know, everyone can relate to being poor. Everyone. Even the richest man in the world, if he has a bad stock day, he's going to feel like, oh, God, I lost a few million million today. Uh, Even though he's a billionaire, you know, everyone can feel poor sometimes. Dials into the capacity of everyone to feel sorry for themselves, no matter how well off they are. Maybe that's what was uh, in the background of my mind. Is there an artist you wish you could have booked? Yeah, several. Joan Baez, John Prine. Well, I did book John Prine one time at the uh, the Arcadia. And Joan Baez and... um, I had Peter, Paul, and Mary all in their separate it's so manifestations. Yeah. Yes, uh, with their own acts, actually. Collins, Judy Collins, and there was the other one. Take a drink of coffee here. Joni Mitchell, all which would have made great shows in the confines of Poor David, especially the new place where we we got the sound about as good as uh, uh, as it's ever been. Thank God to Carlos, the magnificent, the sound man. Yes, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of artists that I, uh, you know, it just because, perforce, the economy of scale, it's not going to work. Who are some of the most famous people who have come to your venues to see a show? Well, when she was city manager, Mary. Chum. Yeah. Soon, Mary Soon. Yes. See, uh, she was a big fan of Guy Clark. We had a couple of Dallas Cowboy players come to the shows. Uh, that. Uh, How about other musicians? You mentioned earlier Stevie Ray Vaughan. Stevie Ray Vaughan and Eric Clapton came in one time. Eric Clapton came in. He was some re- for some reason he was in town the same night that I had Paul Butterfield playing. Paul Butterfield from, uh, you know, from Britain. And uh, Eric's from Britain. And so they were in town at the same time, and and uh, Eric came in to see the show. And I personally did not know the extent, ability of Eric Clapton. I mean, I didn't know that he was such a well-known person. But once he came in the door and people recognized him, then the room started to buzz with the knowledge that Eric Clapton was in the room. And so all the attention 
turned away from Paul Butterfield, who was playing a song at the time, and started uh, was directed towards Eric Clapton, who was sitting not far from me. <laughs> and I, I actually went up and introduced myself. And then at one point, shortly thereafter, he realized that he was drawing attention away from the show. And he says, and he stood up and he said, all right, Paul, I'll see you later. Bye. And then, then he left. So, What were some of the biggest issues in your first year of running a live music venue? <laughs> well, financial, you know, trying to get the, the quality acts and uh, convince the people to be able to pay them on the door. Uh, let me give you an experience. Um, Steve Fromholtz's agent, Craig Hillis, called me and said, I've got a date with Steve Fromholtz up in Dallas, and I need a place. And I, I said, you know, I'm not interested. You know, I give all these big guarantees, and, uh, and, I, and I lose my ass. This is after I had Mother of Pearl, and I lost 300 bucks on a night and it was because uh, uh, the show was great, but uh, not enough people showed up. So he says, well, listen, here's what I'll do for you. He says, you take $100 and advertise it in the paper. Take it off the door. And then give Steve, I don't know, the rest of the door. And uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday was a run he was looking for. And the acts used to book like that back then in those days. They would book the whole weekend or sometimes the whole week. Uh, in Faces, there'd be shows playing the entire week. Uh, so I said, well, okay, I, I, I can't lose by that. So on Thursday night, we had 50 people, 50 people show up for Fromholtz on that night. On Friday night, we had 100 people. On Saturday, the Dallas Times-Herald used to run their weekend guide on a Saturday, and they ran a picture of Steve Fromholtz. And we had 200 people packed into that club on a Saturday night. And which club was it? This was... Poor David's on McKinney. McKinney. Yeah. Okay. This is the original Poor This was 1979. It was February 14th, 15th, and 16th. No, it was 12th, 13th, and 14th. In that area of 1979. And after that weekend, which was sales were great, you know, compared to what I'd done before. They were just terrific. You know, I took a buku of money to the bank. And it convinced me that if you get the right publicity and you get the right artists, people will pay the right price for the show because music is therapy. Music is uplifting. Music is entertaining. Music is fun. What are the biggest challenges now in running a club? Uh, you know, there's pretty much the same and that... Uh, insofar as what they always are, and that is getting the right act at the right place and getting the right publicity. It's sort of a, a formula, getting the word out to the right amount of people who really want to hear the show. That, that today involves a lot of uh, finesse on social media. In fact, we're, be, we're becoming a social media society. To uh, you know, I mean, You've watched the newspapers shrink, the Dallas Observer is 
a mere shadow of its former self in the Dallas uh, Morning News. The Times-Herald is gone, and the Morning News is shrinking. And uh, so it's just not uh, those old... uh, And even, uh, you know, TV TV promotions through, you know, know, having them on uh, Good Morning uh, Dallas or Good Day Dallas has minimum impact. What has the most impact email lists and uh, social media. So those challenges will always remain the same. How did poor David's survive the COVID shutdown? Well, um, you know, why are we still around? Well, because one reason is that I own my own building, as does the Custler Theater, as does the Granada. So the owner's in those three venues, uh, we own our own spaces, and that is a tremendous help. And uh, we did a little bit of live streaming at first, which at least kept the music going, kept some interest in the music going. And then we just, you know, we started shows with, you know, limited capacities. Uh, you know, but the, the main reason is because we own our own buildings, we don't have to generate as much income to meet uh, the overhead, the expenses. Do you remember who your first customer at Poor David's Pub was? No. What is the biggest change in Dallas's live music scene that you, you have seen since you started? The proliferation of live music venues and people who think that uh, they can uh, successfully run a, a, a live music establishment. Uh, and not, this is not only, you know, strictly music venues, but also, you know, restaurants and bars. And uh, I remember uh, one time in Lower Greenville, there was the billiard bar on one side of me and the whiskey bar on the other side of me. And they were both having live music going at the same time, bleeding over into my space where uh, I was trying to have, an, a, you know, a quiet acoustic show. And they were having, you know, like rock and roll shows. So, um, but that's an example of, you know, you know, bars. You know, people get desperate and they try anything, keep the business going. And sooner or later, bars and restaurants will try live music. What advice would you give somebody who wants to open a music venue? You mean other than don't? <laughs> I, advice that involves more than a word. <laughs> well, uh, you know, reflecting upon why I am still in it, you know, I, I, first of all, I have a love for music. And uh, it's been um, pretty much in my family throughout the years. And then and when I got into college, graduated from college, I sort of segued into the music business. Uh, sooner or later, uh, so get some you know get some experience in it you know have a love for the what it is you're trying to sell, you know because you have to be your own best salesman, salesperson I should say, and you know you gotta you gotta like I tell every artist you got to play with passion, you gotta play like you feel it like you really mean it. And that's sort of much the, you know, it's pretty much the same case uh, when you own a business, you know. 
if you love it, uh, you got to love it or get out of it and do something else. Got to have your heart in it. Yes. Okay. That for sure. Well, that wraps up the questions I have for us on today's podcast. Um, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? You mean other than why they should come to Poor David's? Why should they come to Poor David's? Well, because you have an intimate environment with quality sound, an uplifting experience, and an unforgettable time. That's why. And you have a lot of Canoen benefits. So, and, uh, and, and, the, and the cherry on top of the cake, or is it pie? Is uh, we do a lot of station benefits for KNON. Yes, and, and we do thank you for that. Well, I'm very happy to do them. You uh, give us the best opportunity in town, so far as giving us the best nights, and um, pretty much giving us the room for for next to nothing. So, well, I you, mean, I mean, uh, for way too much money. Yeah, charge. charge. <laughs> Way too much. You need to give it to us even cheaper. Yeah. Um, but no, we do. We do. Thank you. Well, you, you do remember you us, that I give was us good nights. I was a, uh, a. I had my own folk music show from sixty from eighty three through eighty six for two and a half years. And, and why did you do it? I, I did it because. <laughs> uh, well, I thought it was a great way to promote my new business. Because I called the show The Best of Poor Davids. Uh, and it took a while for KNON to catch on that I was all I was doing was playing music, <laughs> promoted shows coming up to Poor Davids. Uh, but also I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed playing the mix of music that I played. You know, you know one song bleeding into another and sort of keeping a theme going. And uh, I enjoyed, you know, uh, the, uh, the radio part of it as well. Well, I don't know if anyone ever did, but I'll thank you for doing that for us all the way back before I was even here. Yes, and you're welcome. And we certainly look forward to more shows at Poor David's, and thank you for coming in today and sitting down and um, discussing Poor David's Pub and your life in the live music business. One last question. What are all the venues you've had, and where were they? Well, that's a good question. Um, Bo's Place was the very first venue I had. I owned a quarter of it, and then I owned uh, all of it. Then uh, I got a letter from my landlord, who was Marty's Liquor Store across the street, saying that they were not going to renew my lease, that I would be going on a month-to-month basis because they were going to sell the, the building. Along, around that time, another place came up for sale, the one on McKinney Avenue. It was called the Eaton Run, E-T-O-N, Eaton Run. It was a play on words because they did serve uh, food. So I bought it with, in the back of my mind, thinking that, you know, I'll have a place to transfer my business if they indeed run me out. Uh, which they did a year, about a year later. They refused to, uh, they, they sold the building, that's what they did. And uh, so they asked me to get out, and uh, 
So I moved over to the Eat and Run on 2900 McKinney Avenue. I kept the old license that they had, so I kept the old name that they had. But when it came time up for me to renew a license in my name, they asked me, what are you going to call it? And that's at the time that I created the name Poor David's Pub. I, I thought it was alliterative, plus uh, I was broke. Did you create the name on the spot when you were faced with the question of what you were going to call your next no, venue? No, not on the spot. I, I gave it a, a lot of thought, what I was going to call it. And, you know, so you at thought that a lot about being broke. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was... Yeah, I just got run out of my other place. <laughs> I think a lot of us think about that when we're broke. It's yeah, um, and uh, there was another thought that I had about, um, you know, the Eat and Run was first a dart bar. It was a dart bar in Dallas. They had six dart boards scattered around the room, and people would come in and play darts on Friday night and Saturday night. You know, so, you know, I, I bought it and now I had it, a dart bar. And so in order not to run off all the dart business, I kept most of the dart boards up, but people would notice that I would move one when I would have live music, I would move a dart board out of the way so that eventually they felt like they were just <laughs> the dartboard players felt like they were just getting moved around into the so you had you had live music in a dartboard in a dart bar essentially yes yes so did did that, that create better performances artists knowing that the audience was armed with darts uh that did not it did not it uh, it created some some temerity there was there was fear abounding, but what I what and here's a little fact. I went into the place to preview it before I bought it, and I turned on the jukebox, and there was a song playing called "You Left Me Just When I Needed You Most." I remember that song because I listened to it and listened to the acoustics in the room, and it had a huge ceiling above one area, and it was carpeted. The floor was carpeted. And I said, these are pretty good acoustics. I'm thinking, you know, not thinking that I'm going to run a, open a live music venue here, but thinking, boy, that sure does sound good. That song does. So, you know, perhaps uh, once again intuitively, that's sort of the direction I was leaning. So, Well, great. Thank you so much again. And um, that concludes our podcast interview. That's the story of David Card, Poor David's Pub, and a life in the live music business. Stay tuned to KNON, the voice of the people, to hear about more podcasts about the music and the people behind the music heard on KNON.